Welcome to Ship It, the podcast about building software in the real world from Depth Agency. I'm Matt Merrill, Director of Engineering on the Depth Digital Products team. In this episode, we talk to Depth Project Manager Kate Flynn about her origin story. She talks about how she went from architect to construction manager to software project manager. This leads to a great conversation about the parallels between architecture and software and what software engineering can learn from architecture. Kate also shares her thoughts on striking a balance between planning too much and planning just enough. And finally, what origin story would be complete without a tale about building a two-story underground bunker in powerlifting? All right, from time to time on Ship It, we do uh, what we call origin stories, where we uh, talk to folks in the software industry about how they came up through the industry and interesting lessons that they might have learned along the way. And so today we have Kate Flynn. Um, I'll have her introduce herself. And she has what I'd like to think is an interesting background. So Kate, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Kate. I have been with Depth for about a year now. Came in as a project manager. I agree. I guess my background is somewhat interesting. Day to day, I'm on a singular client. And I'm currently working on two teams, squads. And I'm running both of those projects independently of each other. But I'm simultaneously assisting the entire org um, with some organization and project management setup. Nice. And when you say the org there, do you mean the client org or...? Yes. Sorry. The client org. (laughs) So you're kind of doing a combination of day-to-day software project management as well as strategy work for the client. So you're kind of doing dual duty for them. A little bit. I was going to say almost like triple duty. I think when you're involved in that much of the work, it kind of naturally starts to progress towards uh, helping in a few areas. What the thing that kind of sparked that I thought would make this a particularly interesting conversation is I always appreciate when people come from a different background from software. And you actually went to school for architecture and you kind of, this isn't the right way to put it, but fell into software, I guess. So I'm super curious about that story. And you can start wherever you want. And we can go wherever we want with it. But why don't you tell us what drew you to architecture in the first place? I think that's a solid question. I'm going back to my college essays. Uh, No. (laughs) But in honesty, I grew up helping my dad a lot on projects. My dad is a master electrician. And they had a lot of side projects, you know, uh, rental properties, things like that, side little jobs, redoing houses for people. So I was that kid that would go home right after school. This was before I was in sports and things like that. I would go home right after school and I would be shimmying up a ladder on the side of a house pulling shingles off. It was fun, maybe a little sketchy by today's standards. Uh, (laughs) It was the 90s? It was the 90s, yeah. So 90s kid, uh, it was just kind of free for all. So I would you know, go home and I'll never forget this. I came home one day and I was clicking on the wood floor. And my mom was like, why the hell are you clicking? Like, what's going on? Takes my shoe off. And there was a roofing nail in my penny loafer, like three inches long. (laughs) So I grew up around all of that. Like I helped put up sheetrock. I painted. I did all those things. And I was, we'll say halfway decent at drawing. But I was also a 90s kid that was on a computer a lot. And so started getting into some design software in high school and learning AutoCAD and different things like that. Architecture kind of came, I don't want to say naturally because it wasn't totally natural, but it was definitely something that I had always considered. So going into school for it totally made sense. 
But full disclosure, my my undergrad did not go well my first year. I was definitely did not do well. I know it was not. <laughs> I was also one of those kids that had to work my way back into really good grades and fighting for a good master's program because for architecture, I don't know what everybody knows about architecture school, but in the US, most architecture programs require a master's. If not, there are five-year programs, but they're very intensive. So you have to get into them from the beginning. I was not one of those people. I did my four years and then I went to uh, grad school at Michigan for my master's and came out ready to start into architecture. I was thinking, I'm going to be an architect. I'm going to get licensed. I'm going to do all of those things. And after I started working in a firm for a while, um, kind of realized I was taking on a different role. I started helping manage projects more than I was drawing. I ended up going to all the job sites and checking on things. I ended up tracking everything, setting up all of the back office things so that we could fill out paperwork faster. I was doing a lot more organizing and managing and keeping everybody else on track for deadlines. And not really an office manager, more like we had so many projects coming in and they couldn't keep track. So after that, I started looking for another job in project management, a little side transition into construction project management as an owner's rep. So essentially, the first project management job that I had as an owner's rep, I represented condo and co-op buildings. So I was representing a company, essentially, because they're usually LLCs or corps or whatever. So I was representing a board of people that wanted to do some kind of major capital improvement project on their building. And that can range anything from a new lobby to all new windows on a you know 30-story building or all their hallways or whatever. I was doing that for a while and definitely felt more comfortable there. But I started to really not enjoy the commute at the time I was living on Long Island and commuting to Manhattan. And um, yeah, it started to take its toll. So I started to try to look for something that could keep me a little bit remote, if not full remote eventually, but I needed something to bridge that. And construction doesn't really allow that usually, but I knew I loved project management. I loved the constant communication, the organization, the kind of handle on everything. So that's where I started to try to transition into technology and software, things of that nature. And I got an opportunity to totally revamp this insurance agency that was kind of stuck in the 80s, maybe 90s, maybe I'll give them 90s. <laughs> but they were still on server on premise. They still had paper for a lot of stuff. Their email wasn't even on the cloud. And they were fine with their processes, but it was very obvious that they were falling farther and farther behind from the rest of the industry. I kind of stepped in and took one step at a time, building them up for the big transition, which was to completely redo their agency management system and transfer everything over to an updated cloud-based one. And that took about a year and a half just for that piece of it. I'm saying wow, as in actually that's less time than I thought, but that's impressive. The team was excellent, I have to admit. So that helped a lot. And honestly, timeline-wise, the part that took longer was the training after. So the actual transition wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But the continual training for probably six months after to make sure they were up to the same speed that they were before, that was a lot of hands-on getting into what each person does every day so that the system is set up properly for them. So did they hire you to do that? Or did you kind of fall into... Who drove that? 
in that case? Was that like the owner or? It was kind of both. They realized they had a huge gap. So there was a really large gap where they had an offsite IT person, but they weren't there day to day, like suggesting, hey, you should upgrade to this or whatever. They were just maintaining the existing and kind of doing what they could from there. Realistically, they were still on the same management system that had been around for 20 years. And that just wasn't cutting it anymore. So, and insurance is a strange world where, you know, there's the big companies, but there's smaller agents that represent the big companies. There's a lot of weird nuances in that world that you kind of have to learn as to why this is even important to do. So we had to build in a lot of, <laughs> a lot of specifics into this. But yeah, it was mostly driven by the agency that they realized they had a huge gap and they needed to do something about it. So they were motivated. They were, but just like with anybody else, you know, change is hard. And it's especially hard in an industry that's very old. Insurance and financials is one of the oldest. So they don't like change. <laughs> okay. So it did come with its challenges. Yes. <laughs> and I want to put a bookmark in this, but this is something I'm genuinely... like. I think that many of us in software feel the inertia of change quite a bit. Let's put a bookmark in it. I want to compare it to architecture. But more to the, the point... So when you made that shift, I'm trying to think of a way to ask this that doesn't make me sound like a jerk, but like a lot of that stuff for somebody who grew up with those type of technologies is like, oh yeah, we're going to move you to like Gmail or Office 365. Did you have to like ramp up on a lot of that or was a lot of it like kind of common sense? Like, oh yeah, we're going to move you here. What I'm curious about is, was there a major shift in how you had to think about your project management for architecture versus software? Yes and no at least from the architecture world, and especially as a project manager in the construction and things like that, you are always taught to do your due diligence. So at the end of the day, for me, it was not too far off where, okay, there's this thing that my client wants to do. I'm not a subject matter expert about it. I'm going to go find the information that I need. So that applies, I think, really across any field. When they said, hey, our mail system is slow. It's not backed up anywhere except for our site we need to fix this. My job was to go out, find the information, what are our best options, present the options to the client and have them sign off on one of them and then implement. That was essentially the process every time. And it's not far off from construction. You know, same thing. I go out, I find five designers that I think would be a good fit. These are all their resumes. This is what they suggest they would do for you. This is how much they cost. Client, you need to make a decision. That's really interesting. And if, if anything, I would imagine it's much higher stakes with construction, right? You start building a building, pretty damn expensive to tear all that material down. I do think it's very interesting. It's kind of like, I've noticed this with software versus construction or architecture. There's a lot more work done upfront in architecture and construction because they want to make sure everything is right up until you break ground. So there's a lot more work done, a lot more discussion, a lot more iterative planning done ahead of time for that little blip where the work actually gets put in. And software can kind of not be the opposite, but tends to be shorter on the upfront part. And it's much more aggressively paced there just in comparison. It is an interesting shift to just be like, okay, we're ready. Let's go. Let's just start just start digging into it. And it's like, wait, 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 <laughs> many more conversations. <laughs> I'm really glad we're getting into this. This is the kind of the crux of why I thought this would be such an interesting discussion is like, even though I've been in technology for a long time, I still relate 
building software to building physical things. It's kind of a hackneyed cliche at this point, but I like, I, okay, you got to get the database up and running. That's the foundation or, or whatever. I really believe that there's a lot of things that software can learn from typical construction. And I wanted to get into that. And I find it really interesting that, you know, like when you're building a building, you got to do all that planning. Part of the reason is like, you literally need the lead time to get the materials on site. Right. And that doesn't exist with software, but I can't help but think like there's a corollary to like, okay, well, you got to set aside budget for your cloud costs or something like that. Like, let's just say you could magically get lumber delivered to your site in an endless supply. Like if that's the corollary to the cloud, you wouldn't just do that because you'd be wasting lumber. But we kind of do that for software. I don't know if I'm being too esoteric, but... (laughs) No, I don't think so. But I think there is a lot that can be said for the way building process happens. But at the same time, what I think is really fascinating is now not in traditional construction, but now in like more modern construction, you have things happening where whole houses are being built in factories, packed and shipped out. So even those methods are starting to change and they're kind of learning from both software and the old architecture world and putting it into a more modern context. So I kind of feel like both fields are learning from each other. They've reached a point now where they can build a mansion that way. Instead of it just being, you know, a standard like two bed, one bath kind of thing, they're able to flat pack huge houses and ship them across the world. It's wild. But that's all software stuff. They learned a lot from that. Is there any agile stuff that happens? in the, I, I would imagine that would be pretty difficult, but I figured that I would ask. The only part that I see a direct agile-ish correlation is the design process is very iterative. So there's a lot of collaboration that goes on there between different parties. It tends to go through a couple of cycles. Obviously, this is project dependent, you know, if it's something that warrants that much design work. Then when it comes to actual construction, not so much. (laughs) And that's really interesting too, because like one of the things that we push here at the Depth Digital Products team is doing design sprints and doing, you know, I'm using air quotes here, paper prototypes, but really digital paper prototypes that are just clickable. This is the way it would look, test it in front of users. That's really similar to like putting together a CAD drawing and saying, what do you think of this? What do you want to tweet? Because it's a heck of a lot cheaper to get that wrong there than it is when you're putting together wood with screws or whatever. And I mean, we say the same thing about software. You know, there was this boom between 2010 and 2020 about just, ah, we're just going to build. I can't think about how much money was wasted on software engineering during that time if we had just done more of that. So... I think the same could be said for housing, right? Yeah, there's a huge boom. They build all these houses super fast and maybe not the best quality because they're just worried about getting them out. And then they have to go back and make expensive changes later on. Really? So the same kind of thing happened. So you did this implementation. How did it go ultimately? Like, How did you exit from that? It went really well, in my personal, not so humble opinion. There was hiccups along the way. Like I was saying, it's hard. Some people don't want to change. So there was a lot of effort put in to show the users the benefits and show them how much better things would be in the next year. There was a lot of effort to reassure, to make sure that we weren't leaving anybody high and dry and that everybody would feel very functional by the time I was prepared to leave. So I stuck around for, I think it was a year after implementation to really shore things up. 
And simultaneously, there was a couple other small projects that they were just, you know, working on. Then I had reached a point where I, it was time. I was ready to go. So it was a totally mutual departure. I let them know they weren't surprised. <laughs> we agreed on a, a reasonable date to move on because my project was done. Oh, that's cool. And, and where did you go from there? Went to depth. <laughs> right to depth. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So was it more of a coincidence that you ended up in software? Or was it something that you set out to do? And what I think I heard is you kind of purposely chose it because it was a little bit more flexible and it allowed you to live a more <laughs> free lifestyle and not have to drive in a car. Yeah. And train. It was both a lifestyle choice and it was something that I, I knew I could grow in a lot. Like I knew where architecture went and where it would lead me if I stayed in construction or project management, um, whatever title you want to call it at this point. If I had stayed in that world, I knew where it went. But I knew there was a lot more opportunity for me to work on a lot of different types of projects if I moved into software and technology. There was a lot of different ways it could go. I knew I had to start somewhere. And part of the reason why I ended up really liking Depth as an agency is that I knew I could also get exposure to different projects if that was a choice that I wanted to make. So it made a lot of sense to me. And it was something that I knew that I could accelerate in pretty quickly, just based off of how I handled the implementation. You know, if that had gone sour, maybe things would have been different. But... <laughs> <laughs> I think what I'm hearing, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, is kind of no regrets. Is it panning out? Yeah, it's panning out how you hoped. Yes, it's panning out. And I'm constantly still, you know, learning new things every day, still trying to bone up on all my software knowledge, all that stuff. <laughs> that is one thing. So it's not, I mean, when I'm hiring folks for my team, I always tell people like consulting is not for everybody, but like one thing you are guaranteed is you will always be learning something. And I love it. I love it. How is that being on my toes? So there's something uncomfortable about being too comfortable. Oh, that is so profound. That's my one profound sentence of this whole thing. <laughs> no, it's 100% true because like in my past few jobs, I've reached this point after a few years where I'm just like, okay, I could do this in my sleep. But if I really wanted to, I could probably do this in 20 hours a week and then pick my feet up and take a nap or something. Yeah, I know what you mean. And like, I'm really comfortable, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm not growing and I just need to do something else. Not felt that here. No, new challenges every week, but they're good challenges. They're not overwhelming or anything like that. I could ask you about your craziest client story, but I kind of want to hear your craziest architecture client story. Do you have any good ones? I do. I'm deleting names and people from my brain. <laughs> we'll call him Paul. So Paul was a client in a firm that I was working for. He wanted to build a mansion for himself somewhere beautiful on Long Island. Paul, frankly, did not care what anybody thought and did not care if anybody wanted to fight him on what he was going to do to the property that he wanted to build this mansion on. So when we first started working with him, we designed him a beautiful house. It was probably in not quite final stages, but it was pretty close. He signed off on it. Okay, we're just going to move ahead and we'll tweak things at the end, you know, little details like where certain lights were, whatever. So we start and turns out Paul has already started digging the foundation himself. He just went for it and he decided he was going to add a whole extra story to the basement of this house. So he was essentially building a bunker 
It was two stories tall, and none of that was in the original plans. Two stories tall, underground. Underground. In New York. Four-story house, if you're going actual top to bottom, which four stories is not unheard of. However, two-story bunkers are usually a no-no in most towns. (laughs) We'll say legally, that's usually not okay. So he started building it, making all kinds of noise, moving earth all over this site. And we show up to do our first foundation inspection. And I'm like, this looks a lot bigger than what we drew. This is really weird. This is the first time you're finding out about it. And I'm there with my principal, you know, like from the firm. And he just went tomato red and turned around. He's like, we're going back in the car. You know, I was still fresh out of college. I was like, I don't understand what's happening. He's like, get back in the car. Okay, fine. We go back to the office. And he had to write up a formal, you know, letter to him, a memo basically saying like, we are not approving what's been done so far. We're not signing off on this. We're not going to give any more support. Like this is, this is so wrong. We can't build on this. And he, you know, gave us a whole legal letter back about it, you know, saying it's my property. I could do what I want. All of this. It was wild. I had never had a client that just kind of went on their own and did their own thing. Eventually, what ended up happening, to make the long story short, after going back and forth for weeks, a neighbor called it in to the town and the town inspector came out and shut the whole thing down. He started getting fined by the day and eventually, I guess, decided it was in his best interest to just dig it all out. So he had to dig out his bunker and then re-level the ground and then put the normal foundation in. I think it happened over like two years. It was a really long process. It was really bad. That's an amazing story to me because like in all of the crazy stuff I've seen in software where, you know, you could draw similar corollaries to, you know, people saying, okay, this is the scope we're agreeing on and then pulling the rug out and all this. But like the amount of time and money and money, sheer like energy and power to do that. You have to have no concept of repercussions to just assume that no one is going to say anything when you're building. And it wasn't like a small, you know, footprint. It was a huge house that he built. This It was just wild. I mean, the house is done now. I've driven past it. It's beautiful. <laughs> so software people, like that's the lesson is like, keep things in perspective. And maybe do a little more research on your client first. I don't know. Maybe... <laughs> Or just, you know, like, you know, there's the whole agile thing of, you know, like, ah, don't worry about design documents and stuff like that. It's like, you can't just go at it. Yeah. And I think it also, it brings up a discussion too about like compliance and planning for that, that, you know, the client in this case just said, screw it with compliance. I'm going to do whatever I want. And it ended up costing him so much more than he ever would have paid if he had just done it the right way the first time that we knew we had designed him something that would have been in compliance. There definitely is a corollary to that in software too, where even, you know, something like Uber or, you know, just go into these cities to do ride sharing and they have, you know, now they're kind of in trouble with all the regulations around taxis and stuff like that. So yeah, the scooters too. I'm curious to know if there is one thing that you think that software engineering can learn from architectural engineering. And we're going to pin you down to one thing. I think what we had mentioned 
a little bit earlier about spending a little more time up front would benefit both our team and the clients a lot. And software engineering in general, even if it's internal, just spending a little bit more time on really honing in on what you're trying to build, what that contract looks like, what that team looks like. I think even just a little bit more time there can be really beneficial. And I know that the pace is definitely different and the contracts are built entirely differently. I think that sometimes it's just very easy to eagerly rush in, not really take the time to plan the way that it could be really effective later on. Based on what you've experienced in both fields, is there something that you've noticed about like what might be a rule of thumb to know when you've planned enough in software? Like, Have you come across that balance yet? I don't think I've come across it at depth yet. But when I did the implementation, planning for that, we had reached a point where we are not going to be any more prepared a month from now than we are today. It was a pretty definitive moment because we had planned first the date that we were going to go live. just like, And we backtracked from there. That we assumed, all right, this is our goal date. We're going to backtrack from there. And in the planning process, we had reached a point where we had covered everything on all of the different departments. We had already identified who our test clients were going to be to prove that we had done everything properly. We had you know, laid out all of the configurations and workflows that we thought we needed for each department. We had really reached a point where we had gone too granular. And that's when we were like, all right, we got to cut it and we have to just start working on it. And I'm trying to be like, the, I'm kind of trying to play devil's advocate and say like, okay, there's going to be people who are like, we well, yeah, have, but you could be creating working software instead of making documents and this and that. And I, I agree, but like, I still struggle with that and what the right amount of research and design is. And um, have you ever heard of the concept of the last responsible moment? No, I don't think so. That's the only one I'm going to actually just read. This is a definition from O'Reilly. Is the strategy of delaying a decision until the moment when the cost of not making the decision is greater than the cost of making it. And I think that that's, quite frankly, a more complicated way of saying what you just said. But that's the only thing that comes to mind for me. But that's such an abstract thing. Like, Kind of towards this, it's interesting because I had reached a point when we were starting to work on that particular implementation, basically saying over and over again, the only thing holding us back now is us just not starting because we're ready. But I had to keep pushing for us to actually start to do it. And I didn't understand why we had that resistance from the owners until we actually got started. And I realized that they were nervous about change and things like that. In hindsight, four months after we had finished implementation, so we were still like ramping back up to getting everybody up to full speed again, COVID started. I literally walked into the owner's office when we had that first two weeks of everybody going into lockdown. And I was like, hey, remember when you kept pushing me back and you didn't want to start that project? Guess who gets to be full remote now? And you would have had your entire staff in here if you were still on your old system because they did not have the ability to work remote. I was like, it would have caught... And it's one of those decisions where it's like, we have to just make it. It's going to cost us more if we just don't make this decision simultaneously not realizing essentially a year later, it was going to be the best decision. <laughs> they had no idea. No. And I was thinking more in like a five-year term where I was like, five years from now, this is going to be a lot harder for you to do. It's going to be a lot more expensive. I was thinking five years, not one year. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> All right. So another, I think, amazing thing about you is that you are a power lifter. 
And so can you tell us about that? How did you get into that? Sure. Little known fact to most people, but I've been powerlifting, I believe it's technically now since 2017. We should have said this right up front, but we're talking about power weightlifting. There may be some people in the audience that are like, powerlifting what? And it was like, wait, Sarah. Yeah. Powerlifting consists of three lifts, squat, bench, and deadlift. You have three opportunities to essentially get the highest number you can on each lift. And your total is what your number gets compared to with everybody else in your weight class, which also I should explain, it goes by weight class. I got into powerlifting because I started CrossFit back in like 2016, 2017, and just noticed I was pretty good at the strength stuff and not great at the cardio. But one of my coaches said, you know, you are progressing really quickly. You should consider just trying a powerlifting competition for fun. Just like go do it. So I did a bunch of research and I bought, for those of you that don't know how powerlifting is, you have to wear a singlet. I went and I bought the ugly singlet. That would have prevented me right there from doing it. But so good for you. That prevents a lot of people. (laughs) So, you know, but I have no shame. Go with the singlet. It's fine. I went to my first powerlifting competition, having no idea what's going on, only from YouTube videos, roughly understanding how it works. I had a great time. I placed first. It was awesome. No complaints, no regrets. And after that, I decided to start taking it a little more seriously. I hired a powerlifting specific coach and I started training with them and all the numbers just started skyrocketing. It's always progressive, right? Like you start getting more into it, you get stronger, then you start taking nutrition more seriously. And then you start taking all the timing more seriously and like, okay, if I want to compete then and hit these numbers, I need to do this between now and then. And you just keep progressing from there. So in 2019, I competed at nationals and did not place at all, but I competed at nationals. Yeah. Ever since then, I've still been competing periodically, obviously with uh, COVID and everything. It made competing a little bit weird for a few years. I'm hoping to compete for my next one in 2024. That'll be the goal. I'm holding off on 2023 for now. And next nationals for 2024? I would love to qualify for 2024 nationals. It's really going to come down to numbers. That's what it always comes down to. That's such a cool journey because that must have been such an enormous confidence boost when you went to that first competition and just like, I can do this. Oh, yeah. The adrenaline boost you get is insane. So everybody talks about, at least in powerlifting, everybody talks about the first squat, which is your opening lift, being basically the determining factor for the rest of the competition. Because you're so hyped up, you're so excited, you're on a platform, everybody is staring at you. There's three judges that are all about to determine whether or not you pass or fail. (laughs) And it's supposed to be a weight that you can confidently, I'm going to go with air quotes, confidently do. You go up there and if you fail it, it is such a slap. It really hurts your ego so much. (laughs) But if you nail it, you walk out of there and you're like, I'm going to slap on so much more weight. This is going to be great. (laughs) I can totally see that. And I mean, you're doing that in front of a bunch of people too. So it's like, it's not just one judge, right? I don't really get stage fright, but I will say nationals was, it gave me a little bit of stage fright. A lot more people, it's recorded, (laughs) it's live streamed, you know, it's on the internet forever now. Uh, so, (laughs) So it's definitely a lot more intimidating 
in that regard. But at the same time, you, you know, you go into this, it's so different competing as an adult versus like, you know, when you're in high school and college, it feels weird to be performing well at a sport again, as you're aging. So that's weird. And then you go to these huge events where it's all these other people that are just as into it, if not more than you. And they're just there to have a great time. They're hyping you up. It's very different experience than what I remember. It's for the pure joy of it, basically. Yeah. I have no concept of like, oh, I'm going to go to Worlds or something like that. Like, I don't think that that's going to happen. But what's really funny and weird about powerlifting is it is a sport you need to be in a long time to be good at it. It's not something that most people, I would say, unless you're a genetic freak, most people don't start on day one ready to go to, you know, the Arnold or Worlds or Nationals or whatever. So it's usually something that takes time. And now, did you play sports in college too? I didn't in college. I was a very lazy college kid. <laughs> Incredibly inspiring. I hope some people are, are inspired by that too. I just hope people find a sport. That's all. Like... Having a sport as an adult is extremely important, in my opinion. Thanks for sharing everything here today. No problem. <laughs> All right. So we always end with picks, which is something that you've been interested in or jamming on lately. Doesn't have to be software related. I'll go first to kind of set the right tone. So my pick, and I'm laughing as I say it, is the Netflix documentary World War II in Color. And I like to joke that I am officially a middle-aged dad because I've started to get into war history. And I put on World War II in color on Netflix a couple of weeks ago because I honestly wanted something to fall asleep to and found that it was absolutely fascinating and really, really interesting and just a great overview of World War II. And I would recommend it to anybody, even if they're not a middle-aged dad who's interested in war history. So that's my pick this week. Kate, how about you? I love that that's your pick. I just have to say, that's amazing. See, it does not have to be work-related. Mine is very different. The <laughs> two-parter. So my fiance and I just moved into our house and we have been trying to find our best ways to decorate together, which can be challenging, you know, different tastes. But what we came up with is we both really like music, different kinds of music. So for our wall above our couch, which was very large and had a lot of space, we put up picture ledges and we actually bought vinyl. And this way we can go buy our favorite music. We have a, a record player. And now we have ever-changing wall art of all different kinds because the vinyl has beautiful art on it. So my pick is <laughs> vinyl, oddly enough, something I never thought I would say. Vinyl functional decorations. Functional. And we listen to it when we make dinner and when we have people over. And it's been really, really, really nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Wow. I mean, I, I mean, like, what a great, like, conversation piece for people to come over, too. It's been a really nice addition and a good compromise on the appearance of the wall. <laughs> That's awesome. I've been to bars that do that where, like, they'll play a record and they'll put it out. And it's like, yeah, it's just a great... Oh, what a great pick. Oh, yeah. We have the one that's playing on display on the bar because that's where the record player it is. It's on the bar. So it's like now playing right behind the decanter. My second part is I think that's more like touching and serious. 
I wanted to take it on the funny side. We also watch horrible trash TV. And we're currently watching Love is Blind. It's terrible. What's the other one? Oh, Perfect Match. But I'm only recommending it because it's so bad that it makes me not think of anything else. Because it's kind of like when you watch certain scenes in The Office where it's so cringy, it hurts. It's like that, but different. And with worse people. With terrible people. Sometimes you just need to disconnect. (laughs) On that note, Trash TV and World War II in color. Let's end it. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. 